Hi there, church. And for those of you who don't know me, my name is Matt Hand, pastor at Grace City Church in Denver, Colorado. If I had asked you on January 1st of this year, what are some of your big hopes for this year? What are you hoping in? What are you hoping for? I think all of you, whether you make New Year's resolutions or not, would have had a number of things that you could have said, these are some of the things I'm really hoping that they happen, that they come about, that I see them come to fruition in my life this year. If I had asked you the same question again on May 1st, what are you hoping for? What are you hoping in this year? My guess is that your answers would have changed substantially since January 1st. And I would guess that if I asked you the same question again today in mid-June, your answers have changed again. If you're like me, many of your hopes and dreams for what could potentially happen in 2020 have been crushed already five months into the year. I don't have to remind you what has transpired in our greater culture and society over the past few months. Not one of you has been immune from some of the disasters that have hit our nation between a pandemic and economic crash, mass unemployment, and now large urban unrest, primarily around the topic of race. All of you have been affected. Furthermore, I was reading this week from the governor of Colorado, the models of what's coming along in July and August, I hate to say, are pretty ominous and pretty discouraging. And so I want to say to you out of the gate this morning that if you're feeling a mixture of stress, exhaustion, frustration, maybe even anger, but definitely a sense of hopelessness, you are certainly not alone. In the Wall Street Journal NBC poll I was looking at this past week, nearly 80% of Americans answered and said they feel like the country is spiraling out of control. That sounds like a lot of people feel helpless and hopeless about the future of their country and their place in it. We're in election year, 2020, and so I can tell you how this is going to go. We're going to have the same basic claim in different words from both the left and the right where they say, I am bringing either through re-election or through a first-time election the kind of hope and change that you all can believe in. And come November, over 100 million Americans will vote for one of two old white men, and regardless of the outcome, we will start a four-year cycle all over again, a cycle of hostility, of division, of anger and angst, of blame shifting. And we know that because politics is not the answer to our hope problem. And I mean, nobody's politics is the answer to our hope problem. Whether you are a conservative or a liberal, your political ideology, your political party is not the answer to our hope problem. Whether you're a capitalist or a socialist, 
Your ideology is not the answer to our hope problem. Whether you're a nationalist or a globalist, whether you tend toward traditional family values or kind of newer progressive values, or whether you say, hey, I'm completely out. I've got libertarian, you know, just live and let live values. And I want to say very clearly that none of these things are the answer to our hope problem. You see, our hope problem is at its core not just a political or a sociological problem, although it has dimensions of those things. It is primarily a theological problem, and theological problems require theological solutions. And that's, by the way, why I'm still hopeful and why I hope that you all leave this conversation this morning more hopeful because when society is hopeless and we look into the word of God, I believe that the gospel hope shines all that more brightly when things are dark and people are already realizing they can't just put their hope in some of these other things that they're accustomed to. Turn with me this morning, if you would, to Psalm 33. I'm going to read this short psalm in its entirety this morning. And as I read, you're still turning there, but as I read this psalm, I want you to listen for the answers to three basic questions this morning concerning hope. And here they are. What are the reasons for hopelessness? According to the author, why are people hopeless? Secondly, what is the remedy for hopelessness? And thirdly, why is that particular remedy reasonable? Why does it make sense? Why is it rational? Why does God encourage us to believe in this particular hope? Okay, so what are the reasons for hopelessness? What is the remedy? And why is this reasonable? Psalm 33, the author says, Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with a harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. He gathers the water of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his inheritance. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, 
on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. This is the word of the Lord. Let's begin here with this question about what are the reasons for hopelessness. I don't think it's wise to just sit back and say, well, I feel so helpless. I feel so much despair, so much despondency. I feel so melancholy. I feel hopeless. Instead of taking the additional effort of digging into that and saying, why do I feel so hopeless? What are the reasons behind my hopelessness? Because if I understand root causes of my hopelessness and of society's hopelessness, then then maybe there's a cure. Maybe we can do something about those root causes that by healing those things, we can find hope. And that's what I aim at for the next several minutes. Okay, so the reasons for hopelessness, why do we lose hope? And I'll just kind of give you the the punchline, and then kind of unpack the way this text shows us this three ways. We are hopeless because the objects of our hope continually fail us, okay? If you are hoping in someone or something and they are delivering on the thing that they seem to be promising you, you would not be hopeless. You would not be despondent. You would not feel discouragement or despair if the thing that you're setting your hope in for whatever was delivering on the things that you wanted to be getting out of it. The reasons that we feel hopeless is because we have sunk our hopes and dreams, our future plans into certain things and they keep letting us down, okay? The first thing we see in this text is that our plans fail, verse 10 says the Lord brings the counsel of nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of people. Okay, what's, what's something, anything that you have spent a lot of time and energy doing research so that you can plan? Maybe it's where you attend college or what kind of degree program you enter into. Maybe it's what kind of career path or trajectory you're going to pursue for a number of years so that you can get some of the things out of life and out of your education that you really want for later on. Maybe it's a parenting style that you've researched. How do I raise Good kids who, you know, are basically compliant, who love God, who love their neighbor. And and some of you have planned that, okay? Some of you have planned a particular investment strategy. What am I going to do with my excess income? Put some aside. Maybe it's just a tiny bit, but what's my strategy for later on, for when I retire, for when there's an economic depression? I need to pull that back out. Some of you have made plans there. Or, Or some of you just even made pretty significant vacation plans, right? Where are we going to go? How are we going to get there? Where are we going to stay? What are we going to do while we're there? Okay. Well, on any of these things that you have planned, how do you feel when your plans fall through? How do you feel when you have worked very hard to put something together that makes sense, that, that you can financially make feasible, and it just falls apart? You feel hopeless. 
Um, just, just this year, just this spring, the last few months, all of our years of planning around Asterisk as a public event center where we bring people in and serve them and love them well and get to know them and build relationships with them. Then our April 19th, you know, big church launch downtown in the new location, all the things that were going to be behind that, then spring breakdown in Mexico so we could just kind of step back as a family and enjoy one another and relax and catch our breath before hitting our stride and, and pushing to the end of the school year. It's like boom, 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 one thing after another after another. Everything we planned, simply because of COVID-19, it all fell apart. And you know what kind of feelings follow? Is that despondency, that despair, that, that hopelessness because our plans fall through. Secondly, this text also shows us that not only do our plans fall through, but also our powers fall through or fail. Verse 16, the king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. If you don't know, most of human history has been a struggle or a series of struggles for who has power. Now, I know we come around to an election year and we as Christians are like, well, I don't want power. I just want, I just want my morality. You know, I, I just want equality. I just want freedom for everyone. I just want justice. And those all sound better than just simply saying, I want people who think like me to be the ones who have authority, who have power, who have control over everyone else. But in fact, what I've seen in my lifetime is very often the Christian church has basically wagered itself, not on the gospel of Jesus, but on aligning with a politician or a political party or an ideology, essentially beneath it all, because we want power. We want control over other people's lives. We do not want them to have control over us to set policies that we morally or ethically, or we would say biblically, disagree with, okay? But this text is saying, be very careful whether you've got an army or whether you're, it's, it's your own strength that you've trained to have this kind of power because your powers, time and again, they let you down. Your assets often become your greatest liabilities. Now, we have seen that in elections where we say, oh, if we elect this person, they'll do X, Y, Z for us. And they turn around and stab you in the back because your hope shouldn't have been in that person or in that party in the first place. Powers fail. And then thirdly, we see Another reason for hopelessness is that our protectors or our protection fails. Verse 17, the war horse is a false hope for salvation and by its great might, it cannot rescue. Okay, now back when this was written, a war horse gave you a tremendous strategic advantage over foot soldiers. It made you faster. It made you stronger. It gave you literally the upper hand to strike down on people. Okay, so I don't want you to lose the point here, though. We don't really have war horses anymore. We have tanks and fighter jets, okay? But the point is, a war horse is whatever you rely on to rescue you and to keep you safe. It's your safety net. So a war horse today could be something like getting the right education from the right school. A war horse could be living in the right neighborhood because that'll protect you and keep you safe. Or a warhorse could be your savings account or your retirement account. A warhorse could be a politician, a political party, an ideology. A warhorse could be a religion or your own morality. 
thinking that I depend on that to keep me safe. But just like these other things, like our plans fail us, our powers fail us, but so do the protectors that we choose to keep us safe. They let us down. And when they do, and we realize we are not safe, we are not secure, we feel tremendous depths of hopelessness. Okay? By the way, the, the word false hope here in the text referring to the war horse is kind of a word that means you've been deceived, you've been duped. This thing has over-promised and under-delivered, and the reason why we're hopeless so much of the time is because we are looking to idols, we are looking to objects, we are looking to people, we are looking to parties and groups, we're looking to associations and relationships, and those things all whisper to us lies. You know, and whether they're intentional or unintentional, again, they, they overpromise and they fail to deliver on their promises because these things themselves fail. So you ready for a better way forward? This is the text's answer to what is the remedy now for hopelessness? And this, this just has two very simple parts. And what I see in the psalm is basically saying, God is saying, uh, this, this whole kind of hope is never going to work. Now here's what does. Okay, so the first part of this remedy for hopelessness is simply identify and repent of your false hopes. Identify and repent of your false hopes. And I want you to briefly think about your life on five levels, okay? I'm actually gonna start with level, level two, which is the level of survival. Okay, and it's obviously, this is a baseline need of all of us, because if you are not alive, you cannot do any of these other things that I'm gonna share with you in just a moment. So survival. Then one level above survival, you have safety. Okay, this is the idea of security, of being in a safe place, of feeling safe. Physically safe, emotionally safe, relationally safe. Safety is very important. Then above that, you have significance. Significance, we've talked about at length. Significance often comes through relationships, our need for affection, which is, by the way, a good need that God built into us. But then we also find significance through our identity. You know, am I a duty person? I do my duty so that people think that I'm awesome and I gain some kind of significance out of that. Or I just follow my desires, follow my heart, expressive individualism, and people say, yay, way to go, you're significant, you know, because you do what you want to do. You do you. Okay, that's the idea of significance. And then at the top of this, something that we're still all pursuing is simply satisfaction. Desires, delights. We want to feel not just I'm alive and I'm okay, but we want to feel like I've got joys. I've got delights. I am deeply satisfied, richly satisfied by some of the things that I've chosen. Okay, now, as you look at each of these things, especially above survival, who or what do you rely on to bring you or to give you safety? Because if those things are letting you down and you don't feel safe, you feel hopeless. And you can bump up through these different, different levels. Well, who or what are you relying upon for your significance for those feelings of like, I'm okay, I'm doing something important and significant, and I, I'm, I'm a somebody. 
Because if those people or things that are trying to tell you that you're significant tell you the opposite or they let you down, you feel hopelessness. Even if you're pursuing satisfaction, delight in certain things, and it's just, it just bombs, it's a disaster, you feel hopeless. But I want to come back here because underneath these four layers, which are visible, our fight for these things, our struggle for these things, is actually the most important layer of our lives, which is the layer of salvation. And that is the question of what are you hoping in, what are you depending upon, to ultimately give you a right relationship with God or to give you the gift of eternal life? What are you hoping in to rescue you from the wrong that you've done or from the things that you failed to do that are right that you knew you should have done? What are you looking to, what are you hoping in for your salvation, okay? And this quick exercise where I say, identify and repent of your false hopes. I'm just saying, go through these different categories of your life. This is just a helpful exercise for you. And just be honest with yourself because this is how you get help. This is how you kind of unpack or peel back layers of the onion of your heart to discover different things about, I didn't even realize I was putting a false hope in these different things. Let me give an example with our culture today. One of the modern objects of hope that is pervasive is simply the desire for control. We want to feel like we are in control of our own lives. We want to feel like we're in control of our thoughts, our emotions. We want to feel like we have something to say about our future. And coming back to this chart, we want to know that we're making decisions and we have some control over how safe and secure we are, for example, in our own homes or how safe and secure our children are in their schools. And when something disrupts that, we feel hopelessness. Okay? We want to know that we control the decisions we make around significance, whether we're performing a duty to get kind of a traditional identity, or whether we're just expressing ourselves to get kind of a progressive identity. We want to know that we have control over that. We want to know that we have control over choosing the things that like, oh, that's fine that that works for you, that satisfies you. You know, I don't like raw seafood bar. I want a good medium rare steak. And we want to know that we have choice, that we have control over these different things. And when we don't, we feel hopeless. Okay. So control is just one of the many things that you could fill in the blank and say, Lord, I identify that this is a false hope and the mask has come off. And I realize I don't control my plans. Not ultimately. I don't control my powers and my strengths and my assets as much as I think I do. I certainly don't control my own protection. I'm relying on you. You are my hope of salvation. Okay, so you see how that works. So those five layers, salvation, survival, safety, significance, satisfaction, that's a helpful way to work through different layers of your life to understand, God, what am I putting my hope in if it's not in you? Okay, so you have that as a tool. Moving on here, the second part of this, the second part of remedying your hopelessness is to then just transfer your hope to the Lord. So verse 18, behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love. Verse 22, let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us even as we hope in you. And the same Hebrew word is used there both times. It's a word that means to wait with confident expectation. 
In other words, to, to wait, to, there's actually a trifecta of words that are used here, wait, trust, and hope. And they're not saying three different things. They're explaining one thing three different ways. To, to hope in the Lord is to wait on him and say, God, you do what you want in your time. I don't need to rush ahead with my plans. I'm going to trust your plan. I don't need to, to flex my power and to, to get my posse to do this thing for me in their strength, which will fail. I trust your strength. I wait on your strength. I put confident expectation in your strength. And I don't need to fight for some kind of self-salvation or self-righteousness. I wait, I hope, I trust in your righteousness and in your salvation for me. Let me run to this third point for just a couple minutes here, okay? The, The reasonableness of our hope. And it's interesting to me that probably two-thirds of this psalm that I read this morning is actually God not saying, hey, hope in me, just hope in me. Well, why should I hope in you? Just just trust me, okay? He doesn't say that. He does the opposite and says, let me show you now why it is reasonable for you to transfer your hope from these other plans, these other powers, these other protectors, and put your hope in me. Let me show you how reasonable that is, Okay. Now, let me begin with an illustration. I want you to suppose that you are vacationing, as we almost did, um, but you're vacationing on a tiny little island in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, and in the middle of the night, this wail of sirens goes off, and quickly you realize, oh yeah, they said on check-in that every once in a while there's like an earthquake, and there's a tsunami, I'll bet it's that. You start, you start talking to different people, and they say, yes, you know, a couple hours off the coast, there was an earthquake under deep underwater and there's a massive wall of water coming. We have a couple hours to get our stuff together and get off the island and flee literally for our lives, okay? So let's say you're, you're scrambling to do exactly that and you meet two people in that few moments. One of them is a local fisherman and he says, hey, I've got this wooden rowboat. We take it out in the lagoon every day and we fish and, and I've got an extra seat in the back for you. And then the second person you meet is a private pilot, and he says, hey, right over here behind the hotel, there is a private airstrip, and I have an airplane. And within a couple hours, I can have us hundreds of miles away from here, and I'm willing to take you. Which of those two offers do you think you would take, the local fisherman with the dinghy, or the private pilot with the jet airplane that's waiting to load you up and take you hundreds of miles away. See, I think as you're looking at the various hopes that you're gonna put for your rescue, you you would weigh out in your mind, what's the most reasonable thing I can do here to actually be pretty safe? Now quickly back to this text, look at verses four and five where the first hope we're shown is actually the character of God. The word of the Lord is upright and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. God says, I am righteous and faithful. I am passionate about justice and love. And that is a paradox that's hard for us to put together, I think. I think we we can think of a person who has a passion for righteousness and justice. And we're like, yeah, they're a stickler for the rules. Not really a people person, but man, are they passionate about the law. And they will keep it. And they will keep it for you. Okay? They will reward you. They will punish you. 
And we can think of a person who's very loving and they're, they're, they probably come across to us as like, oh, they're lax because they just love people and they just always think the best and they're very faithful and caring and they're not going anywhere and they're loyal. And God says, I am simultaneously both righteous and just and faithful and loving in all of my words and in all of my works. By the way, this is the heart of, of our ultimate hope, which is the Christian gospel. See, because God is perfectly righteous and just, he has to punish our sin. It's not an option. He can't merely poof, like forgive it and just vanish it in midair. Like he has to discipline, he has to punish sin because he's righteous. That's what you would want a judge to do if the crime were committed against you. So how can God do that and simultaneously love us? And his answer is the person in the work of Jesus Christ, where Jesus comes to this earth, if you don't know, the eternal son of God comes and becomes one of us, becomes a human being, and he lives the perfect, righteous life that you and I were called to live but failed to live. And yet, in spite of his perfection, he dies a terrible death on a cross basically condemned as someone who was one of the worst lawbreakers. And you say, if you don't know, how can that be? Or why, why is that? And the Bible's answer is because God says, I will punish your sin, but I'll punish it in myself. In other words, I will pay the debt of your sin for you so that I can be just and righteous and pay the debt and be faithful to you in love to offer you grace and mercy and forgiveness in place of judgment. Can you hope in a God like that for both your immediate circumstances and for your forever future? He says, based on the character of God, this is a pretty reasonable object of our hope. Secondly, he points us to the control of God. You know, we're not actually in control of that much. Control is an illusion. Even the strongest of people barely have much control over much of their lives. And if they get cancer or they have a heart attack or they get COVID-19, they're down and out just like the next person. We're not in control, but God is. In fact, he uses an interesting illustration of his control to say, you, you look around you and see the universe that is, the, the oceans and the deep storehouses. And he's like, yeah, I just spoke. I just literally just commanded into the nothingness. And everything that you see was created. That's the kind of control I have, okay? Would it be wise, would it be reasonable for you to shift your hope from the things that you currently hope in to a God who has that level of power and control over all things? And then finally, he points us to the reasonableness of the care of God. Verse 18 says, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him. Okay, you're not gonna get that from a war horse. Your horse is not like looking at you like, I'm paying attention because I have compassion. I care about you. I'm watching you to protect you. You're not going to get that from anything that you hope in. We're out at the lake for a reunion this past week and lots of little kids. And it is a constant thing that you see the different parents doing of kind of doing head count of like, where's the so-and-so's kids and where, where's this kid and where's this kid and why? 
Why is your eye constantly on them? And if you have to go put something in the oven, you come back and your eye is on them again because you care, because you're concerned, because you have a heart of compassion and love. It says the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who trust in him. Verse 20, he is our help, literally our strength and our shield. He loves you, he cares for you. And so when I call you as this text calls you to identify your false hopes and to repent of them, to say the same thing as God about them, that they're, they're ultimately worthless, and to shift or transfer your hope to God, you see how reasonable this is? That if God has this kind of character, this kind of control over everything, and this kind of care for you, then the reason for our hopelessness goes away. The reason for our hopelessness is we figure out we just don't control that much. Oh, but we worship one who does. And even the worst things that happen in his plan are not frustrating his plan, but like the death of Jesus leading to the resurrection of Jesus, leading to the salvation of broken sinners and the reconciliation of us to God, even the worst things that we can do align perfectly with the plan of God for his glory and for our eternal joy. Can you trust a God like that? Can you hope in a God like that? So again, this morning, if you are feeling some sense of that helplessness, hopelessness, my invitation, this text invitation, the one big idea is to shift your focus, shift the focus of your heart, shift this focus of your thoughts, from those false hopes that keep letting you down and put those hopes in the person and the work of Jesus Christ who has control, who is working all things for your good, who even now has his eyes on you to care for you in ways that you don't even know you need care yet. So what's your war horse? What's your hope? And are you willing this morning to confess that and to turn and to sink your hope deep into Jesus. This is your hope.